The Anton Savage Show on News Talk. Disastrous wrong turns um, in British politics and, of course, in global politics are the topic of my next guest's uh, new book, What Can I Do? Why Politics Has Gone So Wrong and How You Can Help Fix It. Um, the guest is Alistair Campbell. He was, of course, Director of Communications for the Blair administration. He now has what I think is the top podcast in the UK, which is The Rest is Politics. And he writes extensively on matters of uh, both mental health, but also particularly politics. And that's what the latest book is about, which is about that thing of what can be done in the face of what he sees as a huge populist uprising. Uh, we'll talk to, about that in more detail in a second. Morning, Alistair. Anton, how are you? I'm very good. The First, this book is broken into um, three sections. The first of those sections reads as a sort of a, a visceral howl, a, an expression of raw resentment and anger at the state of politics. But mostly it's directed at Boris Johnson. Why does he get so much attention compared to Liz Truss, compared to a Rishi Sunak, compared to a David Cameron, compared even back in the day to a Margaret Thatcher, whose policies would have been somewhat akin to Johnson's. Why is he such a a fire, uh, such a a lightning rod for you? Because he's the the political creature that unleashed the wave of populism and polarisation. David Cameron does get attention. As I say, that I think he called the referendum for the wrong reasons at the wrong time in the wrong way. But Johnson is the one who has opened the door to that populism. I don't think he's that dominant in the book. I think Brexit is, and I think he is obviously a big part of that story. But also, as you say, I write about Trump, about Erdogan, about Modi, about Orban, about Putin, about Berlusconi. Uh, interestingly, I wonder whether Berlusconi wasn't the first truly populist leader of the modern, modern times. But also, Johnson has just done so much damage to the country. And to see him swan around now picking up a quarter of a million pound for a speech and buying a house, four million pound cash, he's done fundamental damage to early politics. And I think it's going to take some time to recover from that. And you don't, lie the, you, you don't lay the genesis of that at David Cameron's door, because it was ultimately him who buckled to the Eurosceptic side of the Conservative Party and who promised that fateful referendum. Well, I do in that context. In the, in, when I'm writing about strategy, for example, I say that David Cameron brought and used a tactical response, the referendum, to deal with what was a strategic issue. I do criticise him heavily for that, but I don't think David Cameron was a terrible human being or a liar. Um, you mentioned Margaret Thatcher, as you say, when I was a journalist on the Mirror covering Maggie Thatcher's era, I didn't like her, but I never thought she was a I never thought she was driven by narcissism. I never thought that she was all about herself. She believed what she was trying to do, and she believed it was in the best interest of the country. Boris Johnson, you know, on our podcast recently, the podcast to do with Rory Stewart, we just interviewed George Osborne, and he states, as a matter of fact, he's somebody who knows Boris Johnson better than I do, he states, as a matter of fact, that Johnson didn't really believe in Brexit, but he saw it as an opportunity to... To you know, take a further step to the top of the of the political ladder, and that's all that he cared about. Well, this goes to one of the things that you establish as a principle in the book, which is what you describe as sado populism, where it's not just that people vote for something which is popular in the extreme; it's that they vote for something that is populist and damaging to their own self interests. And it's your view now that that is common across Western politics. Well, it's certainly what Putin does. Putin pursues policies that are about uh, creating division, about making sure that the people who support he wants feel better about themselves than they do other people. 
is certainly an essential part of, of Trump's politics. You know, Trump didn't wake up every morning and think, how do I make life better for people who voted for me in the Midwest? He thought, how do I make them like me more by disliking other people more? So, yes, I know that I'm not exactly, we're not improving your living standards. You might be losing your job, but hey, look over there. There are the Mexicans, there are the migrants. Let's build a wall, keep them out. And likewise, I think that if you look at Suella Braverman now, our Home Secretary, it, does she wake every, every, up every morning thinking, I have to solve the immigration and asylum problem? She exploits it by, for example, having a ridiculous, unworkable policy by which we send asylum seekers arriving on boats to Rwanda. The policy is not designed to make life better for anybody. It's to make the people who care about that issue feel better about themselves, even though their own lives are getting worse, not better. But how do you scoop all of that up and get it back into the bottle? Because you have a situation where, thanks to the way traditional media now operates and um, thanks to the way that the entire dynamic of of social media is geared, it is that kind of behaviour that gets you elected. Whereas high moral ground visionary policy stuff gets you a small group of the elite saying fair play to you and you get nowhere. Well, I think you have to change that, and I think we'll change it. One of the reasons I've written the book and going around schools and colleges and saying to people, ultimately, your generation is going to have to fix this, because, and your generation cannot be cynical about the possibility of making a change. Look, I think we have to take some hope from the fact that, for example, uh, Trump is out of power, Johnson's out of power, Bolsonaro in Brazil, he lost the election, Macron beat Le Pen. Um, so there are signs that this can be defeated. The election in Turkey, obviously, where Erdogan looks like he's going to win again, so that's a victory for populism. The election in Thailand, the populist lost, and this very new young progressive guy came along, and he's promising massive reform. So it's not all bad. Um, I think the biggest single thing is awareness. But hang on, Aster, I mean, I don't want to attach a, a cloud to your silver lining, but if you look at the ones that you cite there, uh, Trump, who we thought was uh, gone in a beaten docket, has has blown DeSantis out of the water and is now, Ooh. according to all the polls, a possibility for a return as president. That is true. Macron may have beaten Le Pen, but by the skin of teeth. I mean, none of this would point to a sweeping away of the populist movement. It is barely holding back the barbarians at the gates. I agree with that. I'm simply saying that the... And I say in the book, I've got a line in the book, which thank, thank you for reading it. I can tell when an interviewer has read it and when they haven't, I can tell that you have. But there's a line in the book that you'll have read that says that uh, defeating a populist is not the same as defeating populism. But I think the awareness is what's key. I think people have to, I do think that we need greater political education. I think that people need to be made more aware of what's what's going on. And and I do think that the young generation gets this better than, than maybe we give them credit for. It's why I actually do think it's time to to lower the voting age. Um, look, the other thing is, I, I, you know, on the our next guest on the on the leading podcast channel that I do with Roy Stewart is your T-shirt, Leo Varadkar, which is out, I think, on Monday. And, you know, we talk about these, these are issues that are affecting every single democratic government in the world. And the question is whether the politicians pander to that kind of new politics, even though they know it's doing such damage, where the temptations to do so are strong, or whether you actually challenge it. Now, I actually think that the public in your country and in our country is ready for a form of politics that says, do you know what? Populism isn't the answer because they don't solve the problems. Now, as had, the reason I mentioned Leo Varadkar is because he makes the point that, in his view, Sinn Féin are pursuing what he would define as a populist agenda. Now, that then becomes a part of that debate. People can say that they are or they aren't, but at least 
there is greater awareness now, if, if you like, of some of the tricks that are played on the electorate, which in Brexit, I'm afraid, has left us with a, with a damage that is going to be enduring and deep. How then did Labour get it so wrong? Because one of the things that you do, you map out in, in the book the history of recent Labour elections. And when you write the sentence, it's fairly stark because it goes, lose, 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 Blair, 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 lose, 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 lose. Now, how do you go from three dominant elections and the kind of the, the, the upsurge that New Labour had to completely losing the grasp of the electoral momentum and interest? Well, it's a very, very good question. And, and I do think that Keir Starmer is, is grappling his way towards some of the answers, because I think that what happened was that if you go through the, the leaders of the Labour Party since Tony, the first thing to say is that largely because of Iraq, but also because of you know people just feeling that he'd been around too long, um, there was a negativity about Tony inside the Labour Party that was very, very damaging. Because if you've got, you're always going to have the Tories saying that Labour, there's no point in having a Labour government. You're always having going, most of the media saying it. Once you've got the Labour Party saying it as well, people start to think, oh, maybe that Labour thing is not as strong after all. I think that Gordon Brown distanced himself or defined himself against Tony rather than against Cameron, who was his main opponent. I think Ed Miliband then took it a little bit to the left. And then I think Jeremy Corbyn came in and, frankly, sort of, you know, left the ground on which you actually can win elections these days. And I think Keir Starmer's doing a pretty good job in getting us back onto that ground. The other challenge, of course, for um, any politician, because the, the I said the book was broken into thirds. The last third is effectively the what can you do about it? And one of the recommendations that you make throughout that is a call to action, is that people need to do the Greta Thunberg thing, start by getting a placard and stand outside, start by running for election, start by getting involved. But the higher up the, the pecking order you go in politics, the more you have to re- interact with traditional and with new media. In that, y- you seem... Wary is the wrong phrase, but you don't point towards legislation or control of that media. I mean, if you take Rupert Murdoch as a case in point, you mention him in the book, but there isn't the sense of an influence like his should not be allowed to occur. Um, Well, I do say that I I, I think that the the politicians, I I was, as you you know from my previous books, the diaries in particular, I felt that we should have done more about the, the conduct of the media. I'm a big supporter of the, those parts of the Leveson inquiry that have not been implemented, and I think they should be. And I even think, actually, there's a case now for, for, for saying that, it, like in America, the reason why Murdoch is an American citizen is because in America you cannot own substantial parts of media without being an American citizen. I think there's a case for doing that in Britain. We have so much now uh, ownership of our media by non-doms, by foreigners, these right-wing think tanks around the place that are pumping money in. Um, uh, the other thing, Anton, to be honest, I, don't, I do write about the media in the book, and I write about journalism, and because I kind of do spend a lot of time whacking the media, I'm actually trying in this book to say that good, we actually need good journalism more than ever. And I'm, uh, part of my call to action and call to arms is for people who maybe don't fancy politics, but they're interested in journalism. I'm saying that's not a bad thing to do, but but make sure that actually you're not part of that kind of Murdoch-Dacre school of journalism, but actually you see journalism as a good thing, and you see it as something where you're not there just to try and use journalism for your own power, but you actually are trying to use journalism to speak truth to power. But power now, to some extent, 
is that form of journalism. Power is what Rupert Murdoch has. And to some extent, I mean, even, even yourself and Blair, you had to get out the long spoon and sup with them. Yeah, that's true. But I think we overstate it. I think, I think it has changed. I think that, look, the reason why we, you know, famously travelled halfway around the world to Australia to kind of, if you say, uh, sup the spoon with Rupert Murdoch was because we were trying to neutralise the right-wing media, which had done massive damage to Labour leaders in the past, particularly Neil Kinnock. And I saw that firsthand because I was a journalist on the other side of the fence, as it were. And I was one of the few that was sort of back in Labour, watching this avalanche of venom and hatred and bile and fiction and all the rest of it. So we were determined to neutralise them. Um, we, maybe we did better than we thought we would, and the, the Murdoch papers came round eventually to support us, because I think they really, they, they'd worked out we were going to win. But I think for the, I'm not saying the media isn't influential, I'm not saying the press isn't influential, but for me, the influence of the right-wing press, the tabloid press, has been less about their impact, direct impact upon their readers. It's their impact upon the, the broadcasters and the center of gravity where the debate takes place. And I think because of social media, I think that's changed. I think it is possible now that, that the, you know, the, 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 even the phrase, the mainstream media, I mean, the podcast I did with Roy Stewart now, we're getting five, six, seven million downloads a month. Is that, are we now mainstream media? I don't know. The, the newspapers, I mean, the newspapers are, you know, most of them desperately fighting for survival, having to adapt to the online world and so forth. So I think that landscape's changed. And what it says to me is that to labor in particular, I think it's possible now to be, it's actually in a funny sort of way, it's easier now to set your own agenda because there's no such thing as the agenda. The agenda is just moving all the time. You say uh, at the end of every section of the book, you distill it into a series of recommendations. And um, when you get to the bit of what can be done, because at the outset, you talk about having talked to young people and and there is a sense of of just exasperation with politics and that, that there's nothing that can be done to change. And you say at the end, the systems on which our democracy depend have to be made stronger and more resilient. And the barriers preventing good people from getting into politics have to be torn down. Can you hand on heart recommend politics to anybody as a job? I th- well, what I, t- I don't sugarcoat in the book. But I don't say it's always pleasant, but I'm very struck by a conversation I've recorded in there, Judy Gillard, the Prime Minister of Australia. Amazing woman. And famously, she made one of the most famous speeches ever about misogyny in, in Australian politics. And I said to her, if an 18-year-old young woman came to you today and said, look, you know, can you really recommend that I go into politics? What would you say to her? And she said, she said, look, I don't say it's going to be easy. I don't say anybody's going to roll out the red carpet for you. You've got to roll out the red carpet for yourself, and you've got to go, and you've got to do it. When I look back on my career now, she said, I don't think about the misogyny. I don't think about the hate. I think about the stuff we got done. And so that's why I say to people, don't go, go into it with your eyes open. But don't go into it thinking that it's all terrible because it is ultimately uh, the way you change the world. Finally, Alistair, one of the things you talk about in the book is your own um, mental health, um, how you, your feeling and, and level of balance, including a very funny story about how your post-it notes led a, a Norwegian audience to think that you were reminding yourself about the importance <laughs> of cheese. But I'll let people read that within the book. From that perspective, given that you're focusing a lot on things that annoy you, how are you this weather? I'm absolutely fine. Thank you very, very much for asking. I mean, I have written about mental health in the book, even though my last book was all about mental health, because I do think it's incredibly important for the young people in particular, who I think have got a greater focus and understanding of mental health as, a, as an issue and their own kind of state of mind. A lot of life and a lot of politics is actually about what mindset you have. 
I talk a lot about having a campaign mindset. A campaign mindset, I think, is something you can develop. You know, before we came on air, you and I were chatting about an incident in the book I write when I'm on literally doing a live interview and I'm almost having an out-of-body experience. My mind is just absolutely leaving the body and I'm, 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 I'm kind of going all over the place. And, you know, these are things that, that can happen to any of us. And, and, and I, but, so I've got that experience and I can, I can say to this, the school I was at earlier this week, I was saying to the kids there, they were saying, you know, how do you cope when you get scared? And I said, well, that's a brilliant question because I, I don't feel fear when I'm doing anything. I, don't, I can't remember the last time I felt scared. Maybe, probably, you know, when, when I knew that I was told my brother was about to die, it was probably the last time I thought, oh, I'm scared of this. But actually, what I do get is a sense of kind of anxiety, and that's a different thing. Uh, the question then is, how do, you, how do you deal with that? What can you do to address that? And that's what I, what I try and address in the book. And I, I think there are things in there that hopefully people can, can use, not just in politics, by the way, but in any walk of life where, you, you know, I was, I was talking yesterday to a guy who's a, who's a musician and uh, was talking about, and he gets stage fright. And, um, you know, I've got little tips and little things that I do when I get anxious, when I'm, uh, as it were, you know, out in the public arena. And I gave him one of these tips and he sent me a message the next day that I, I did these little thing with the thumbs and the four fingers. It really worked. So, you know, that was it's all stuff, all sorts of stuff we can do to calm ourselves down. It has to be said that the source for that, you also tell the story of the, in the book of where that came from, having a psychosomatic asthma attack while attempting to play the bagpipes, which is one of the world's great <laughs> ironies, it has to be said. Is, that is not, having <laughs> asthma while you're trying to get a flower of Scotland blasted out, it's not the easiest thing in the world. But yeah, but the guy, and the guy who gave me the tip that I now use, he got it from a guy who was, who had the yips playing golf, a professional golfer who had the yips. By the way, as a total aside, have you ever, have you seen this change in Charles Barkley's golf swing? No. Oh, Alistair, if you get a chance, have a look on YouTube. Charles Barkley, the former Dream Team basketballer, had the single worst golf swing that has been known to man. He used to pause halfway through the swing, stop, and then restart for the rest of the swing. And he has worked on it and worked on it and worked on it. And like your thing of avoiding asthma with the bagpipes, he has finally got a working golf swing. It's one of the, the great uh, comeback stories of our time. Anyway, this is an aside. If you want to read Alistair Campbell's book, it is. But what can I do? High politics has gone so wrong and how you can help to fix it. And if you want to join the six million people who are likely to be listening to uh, Leo Varadkar, the podcast, of course, is The Rest is Politics. Alistair, always a pleasure. Thank you. All the best. The Anton Savage Show, Saturday morning at 9 on News Talk.